0: Good evening, everyone.
1: Hi, Jamie. How are you?
0: Hello, Katerina.
2: I'm well, thank you. How's the day been for you?
1: Very good, thank you. And for you?
2: Uh, Yep, so far so good. And it's, well, this is is titled the beginning of my next day, right? It's two in the morning for me.
1: Right, it's already so late (laughs) here. Hi, Denise. (laughs) How are you?
2: Hi, everybody. Hey, Denise. Uh, <laughs> how are you <laughs> doing? <everybody? laughs>
1: because we didn't have a room for today's <laughs> day.
2: Really, really excited for this talk. Happy to see you all.
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah. I merged two papers for this. So, um, it's uh, we are talking about both papers. <clears throat> so, I made the merged file and uploaded.
2: This one's about time,
1: isn't it? Yeah. About time. Oh, oh no! No, sorry, sorry. The artificial, sorry,
3: artificial. <laughs> you scared me. After. Sorry, no, 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 is
2: no, about no. time. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was my
4: bad. Yeah. Um. Cool. Oh, actually, this is
2: this really interesting. Yep, definitely.
1: Victoria will also be here, and yeah, will be a really good room. Serena will be here.
2: Ah, oh, good, cool house.
1: Basically, all of us, the Dream Team, will be here. Oh wow, Serena Jeez. has a pretty new picture, I have to tell her.
5: Does she what is it? Yes, she does. I have told her too. Hello, everyone. Hi, how are you? So
1: happy to see you. It feels... Right? It feels like forever. We haven't I heard each other for two days.
5: Every <laughs> time we meet again, it feels like this. We're long lost
1: <laughs> friends. <laughs> so funny. Well, this time we have, Friday and Saturday. Tomorrow at nine, we have the time room. And then we have very busy week. A couple, but the Next week we'll be very busy with amazing rooms. Good.
2: I'm excited and also uh, looking forward to reading these, these, the journals for them as well.
1: Did I tell I you, just- Serena, how pretty your picture is?
4: Oh, thank you. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, I was I was on my way to work, which is rare these days. So <laughs> I thought I'd update my pic.
5: Never going I'll have to go and work on our PTRS. Thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, right. It <laughs> I hate <this>. <laughs> <laughs> what, is it, what is your
4: picture, Serena? I'm sorry.
1: It's, it's not for herself, but the really pretty one, like with a red. Something with red, and then the lips go with it the lipstick, the hair, all pretty, and the smile. Oh, that's, that's <laughs>
4: awesome. Now I'm blushing in have... red as well.
5: <laughs> <laughs> the other one is also fabulous. Other. Yeah, this one is just a new, new, um, new, different, a different look. There's so many looks.
1: <laughs> Hi, Dr. Manit Singh. Welcome. Thank you for coming.
3: Welcome, Dr.
1: So the unmute button to unmute yourself is all the way on the right um, bottom corner. There's a little microphone um, signal a sign. And if you press on it, you're unmuted. And we can hear you. Hello. Yep. Hi. How are Hi. You to- Hello. Hello. Hi, Hello. Welcome.
6: Hello. <laughs>
4: So this is going to be. I'm really excited about this talk because I did spend some time thinking about how we might capture CO two and upgrade to methanol the ways back. So really looking forward to this.
6: Yes, um, that's uh, you know one thing you can do out of so many things with CO two. So Suddenly. Anyway. Have you been
2: having a good day so far, doctor?
6: i'm sorry have you been having a good day today yes yes i'm actually coming from a tennis court right now <laughs> oh playing. nice yes and the weather here in chicago you know only some days are good <laughs> we have a week coming up uh with all rainy days so get your tennis and well you can <laughs> yes <laughs>
1: we'll start in around two minutes if that's okay um we still have two minutes so um yeah we'll give people time to arrive and then i'll introduce you to the club uh, give you a little bit of background information and then if it's okay victoria will ask you a more general question yeah uh, how um became a scientist type of question, but Victoria asks this type of question way better. And then feel free to talk about your research. I merged the two papers. The first one is the, um, the um, 2019, is it? the paper? One. Yeah, and then the the more recent one is next. So if you click on the link, do you see the link on top of the room?
6: Yes, I can, yeah.
5: Really, doctor, I'm just going to ask you about your serve. Sorry? I said, really, I'll just be asking you about your serve.
6: (laughs) What's your secret? Definitely.
5: Welcome, Dr.
7: Shah. Hello everyone. Happy Friday.
4: Hello. Hello.
2: Hi, Doctor Shaw. How are you? Happy Friday. <laughs>
8: Okay. So,
2: that's While we're uh, waiting to get started, take this opportunity to encourage people to share the room so we can have more ears on this amazing um, presentation. Very good idea. Thank you, Denise. I need to get in the habit of doing that a lot more often.
1: Okay, um, yeah, let's Shit. start, I'm sorry, I keep getting calls and I keep <laughs> pressing them away, but it's annoying, I'm sorry about that, because I'm using the phone. Can Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, perfect, i think, yeah. about that. Um, Good. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the science... Of-
4: uh, can uh, you uh, hear me again? I'm your sorry. Your audio just <laughs> went out. <Sorry.
1: laughs> yeah, You're it's. Kidding. I keep getting calls. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to avoid that, if, like, somebody is very persistent in calling. Uh, how do I turn that off? <laughs> it doesn't work. Uh,
2: you, blo- you just block their number temporarily, and maybe you forget to unblock it later.
1: Yeah, exactly. And well said. <laughs> I'm very sorry about that. Anyhow, welcome everyone, and a special thanks to Dr. Manish uh, Singh. Uh, he's our special guest speaker here today, talking about his amazing research. And let me give you a little bit of background information. He is assistant professor of chemical engineering and editor of chemical engineering research and design and he is at the University of Illinois in Chicago and he, um, he did his, um, his uh, bachelor at Sardar Patel University. And then later, he went to the Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay, uh, with uh, w- working with his supervisor, Professor Jayesh Bilair and Professor Sandeep Roy. And then he did his PhD at the Purdue University with, the, with his uh, supervisor, Professor Ram Krishna. And um, then he moved on for his postdoctoral um, fellowship at the Joint Center for Artificial Photosynthesis at the UC Berkeley and Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, and um, yeah, and now he's at the University of Illinois Chicago. He won different um, awards, including the best uh, PhD um, award um, and outstanding so the outstanding graduate student research award. And yeah, welcome. Uh, and Victoria, please go ahead. Thank you, Katarina.
5: Yes, Doctor of Science Society welcomes you. Congratulations on your awards, that's really exciting. So apart from hearing about your fabulous serve, um, just to bring another human aspect to the presentation today, I have a question about your connection to science. So looking back to your life, Maybe you can think of a moment or experience that you associate with providing a spark of curiosity that developed into your particular interest in science?
6: Yeah, certainly. Now that you have asked me to think about it, uh, I've never thought about it, why I got into science. Uh, I think um, mostly, I would say, uh, it's my dad. Um, And then, you know, uh, more than science, I was interested in engineering. Um, my dad, um, I grew up seeing him um, dealing with uh, oil wells. He was uh, superintendent engineer in one of the uh, oil refineries uh, in, uh, in India. So seeing how you solve problems, how you deal with different uh, uh, technical issues, uh, really got into me somehow. And then when the time came um, after my high school to select where I want to go, I chose chemical engineering without knowing what it involves. I mean, I I, I knew that, you know, um, chemicals are everywhere. And I knew that engineering is something I'm interested in. So I, I got into chemical engineering. Now, science was a bit of a um, a journey from engineering, because uh, I started with with a passion towards engineering, um, and and an undergraduate, you know, you barely um, touch upon any independent thinking. Uh, you you mostly go over what you have what what you have been asked to learn and what you have been taught, uh, which is good because it gives you really um, overview of things out there. So I got myself familiarized with different, you know, uh, chemical engineering aspects, uh, paper pulp industry, cement industry, pharmaceutical, uh, chemical. You name it, right? So you got you got trained into all of that. But then um, after um, after my bachelor's, um, I had an opportunity to uh, you know work in uh, in one of the engineering chemical engineering uh, factory over there. And something didn't feel right to me, because uh, when I went there, it was mostly a routine thing, because I, I was asked like look over a particular process. Um, and what I really grew up seeing, like problem solving, independent thinking, uh, wasn't there. So somehow I didn't like that. So I thought of maybe, you know, until I find what I really like, let's take uh, explore more into what chemical engineering has to offer me. So I went to um, one of the premier institution in India, Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay, and there was the first time where I saw, you know, people and instructors and professors over there being curious about every little thing uh, you you learn and you do. And that curiosity really was an introduction to me, to, to science. Right. Um, you know, for example, if, so for me, I, I was uh, doing a master's project, um, on, um, how to break open a cell to release protein. And, and these proteins can be, can be used for different applications. So how do you carefully open the cell, uh, without, you know, uh, breaking down the DNAs and RNAs, uh, and, and there you start you know going away from engineering which is pretty much you know hammering those cells and looking more into the science part right what what are the cell walls are made of and and how how you can break it open enzymatic lysis is one one option many other options so i was looking mostly into freezing them to that uh, using liquid nitrogen <laughs> And, uh, and breaking them with a very little uh, you know, uh, impact. So that was uh, sort of an introduction to science. And I got very much interested seeing all my professors over there uh, doing research, solving different kinds of problems. And that was my launching pad, really, because I, then I knew that, hey, working in, in chemical industry is not my thing. I have to go and explore and go deep dive into science, and then I I saw you know why my professors who were teaching me they were so good at doing what they're doing. Then I learned all of them got their PhDs, and that what trained them to to do better science and you know more interesting science. So I thought, hey, let's do PhD. So from there, you know, uh, came to Purdue. I I came here started doing you know, my PhD and my PhD was mostly focused on different problem. Uh, but, you know, as it says, it's a doctoral of uh, uh, philosophy than anything else, you learn how to do research in PhD. So I, I focused on one of the problem, uh, crystal crystallization, crystal growth. But more than that, I learned, you know, how to critically think, how to solve problems using scientific tools. Um, so I became better scientist. And then I again switched my area of research and I went to artificial photosynthesis because that was that time back in 2012 was very interesting to me. And there goes the journey. I think I gave you a long answer to what you asked, uh, but that was my journey, not starting from science, but starting from engineering and then going into science.
5: And starting with your dad. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I love to hear this journey. It's it's so interesting because you're you're mentioning the whole time you're mentioning that you're very aware of your your drive toward independent thinking. And I was hearing you you know mention that at first there was no there was barely any independent thinking that you were noticing. And with the job, it was the same. And so it sounds like your curiosity is what pushed you. And then you came to serve your curiosity, you know, maybe with what you learned at Indian Institute of Tech, you know, and and what you, how you describing the ability to pursue critical thinking with the PhD program. Um, that's thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that. And
6: um, thank you for asking this question because that got me thinking this, which I never <laughs> thought about. That uh, well, I'm with my family today
5: oh that's so nice well, it's a beautiful exchange that's <laughs> great that they can hear your story too because that's what we have to tell our stories to our families I have a follow-up question if that's okay yeah. um, so then from that that place um, you know that you just brought us to how did you arrive what was your path to arrive at your research that you're um, going to tell us about now with respect to co2 capture
6: Right. So I, um, as I said, in 2012, after my PhD, I uh, decided to, you know, solve and go into something much more interesting. I think interest is sometime is is very personal. So to to me, that time, artificial photosynthesis is what's very very interesting. So I I applied there. Although I had no background, they chose me for postdoctoral position. I learned everything. Um, and, uh, and that got me, you know, interested into... So, so the interesting thing is uh, the Joint Center for Artificial Photosynthesis is and, and, and was uh, one of the largest research hub in the United States, about $120 million plus, um, dollar uh, uh, of the center. And this was between Caltech and UC Berkeley. So, uh, the center started with simple water splitting you know, water when applied, uh, you can apply uh, electric potential to water and you will start generating hydrogen and oxygen. Now, instead of applying electric potential, you use um, uh, photovoltaics you use solar cell. Uh, and we started with a simple system and then uh, we, we, we went deeper. Once we understood that particular system, we went deeper into utilizing CO2 then. So my journey there and JCAP both ended in 2016. Uh, JCAP started uh, in 2010 and ended in 2016, and it ended at the point of, you know, how you can take CO2, assuming it's available, and uh, use artificial photosynthetic system. I, I can describe that uh, at some point today, uh, but it is essentially artificial leaf mimicking photosynthesis. Uh, and how you can use the energy of a photosynthetic system to selectively convert CO two to varieties of fuels. Then I started my independent research at the University of Illinois, uh, Chicago, and uh, you know things were good. You can you can convert CO two to fuels, but how do you get CO two? And that was a question I started you know uh, probing into. And 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 that time, 2016, and of course uh, before that most of the techniques on co2 capture were very much um, localized like they were there were co2 capture units in uh, in cement industry and in, uh, uh, in petrochemical industry and you can see big scrubbers uh, which is scrubbing off co2 from flue gas now the vision of artificial leaf is something portable something like you can you know put it locally um, in in your house or in, in in a building you can't put big scrubber from petrochemical industry into into a small building it's not feasible so then we started looking into what are the ways you can um, capture co2 from dilute sources like flue gas point source like from from industry or air distributed source you can pick up uh, CO2 from the air. Um, and then there are broadly speaking, you know, all the CO2 capture processes, you can classify into three or four bins. The bin number one is, is a process in which you take absorbent, liquid absorbent or adsorbent. You That adsorbent is selective to CO2 captures, CO2 get captured spontaneously. And then you release c o two by increasing the temperature. So it is called temperature swing process. You capture it and then you release by heating it up. Very energy intensive because again, to release c o two you you're you're, 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 uh, you're burning more fuel, right? To, because increasing temperature requires burning of fuel. Then the second bin is the pressure swing process, meaning you you absorb c o two and you can apply vacuum for for instance. And by pressure differential, you can take off CO2, which is also a very uh, energy-intensive process. It requires pumps and compressors, and you know, uh, and generally not so efficient. Bin number three is a pH swing process. Now, in pH sing- swing process, what happened is uh, CO2 is an acid gas, right? Uh, when you capture CO2 in any liquid, it be- uh, you know the liquid is essentially contains carbonates and bicarbonates. And the pH is a bit higher, it's, it's close to around 10, 10 plus, for example, or maybe close to six or seven, right? So when you have this uh, soda water, and that's what I call it, because when the CO2 is enriched, it's it's, it's a soda water. Uh, you release CO2 by acidifying it. So what you do is you add, uh, you know, for instance, you add vinegar to a, to a soda bottle, You you'll start seeing fizz coming up, right? So that is a pH-swing process. That's the bin number three, Uh, also very energy intensive because you need to, again, neutralize the pH, and and that requires a lot of um, um, energy. And the process number three, which is relatively less intensive, is called moisture-swing process. Now, what is moisture-swing process? It's mostly based on uh, kitchen chemistry. Uh, you know we know baking soda. Baking soda is you can think of uh, a, a material which is which has lot of CO2 in it in terms in form of bicarbonate ions, sodium bicarbonate. Now uh, you 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 can add vinegar to that and that's a pH swing. When you add vinegar, you will start seeing fizz. A second way where you won't see fizz as such, but you will still release CO2 is you simply add uh, water to the baking baking soda. Uh, so when you add water to sodium bicarbonate, uh, that it will start dissolving. And when the bicarbonate start dissolving, it will deprotonate and it will convert into carbonate and CO2 and CO2 will release. Now, that was an inspiration. So that, at that time, Klaus Lackner, uh, and he, he's the one who developed this process. Uh, he was in Columbia, now in Arizona. Um, he was implementing this process using um, a membrane. Uh, and that's an ammonium uh, ion exchange membrane. It's it's a resin which has positive charges in the background, and then the counter ions are OH minus, which is essentially a base. And when you expose CO2, uh, you make bicarbonate. So you know when when you expose to the air, direct air capture, you 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 convert the alkaline membrane to a bicarbonate membrane, and then to release that, you you expose humidified. Um, you know environment and as soon as water gets in contact co2 releases very nice because once the co2 releases you can again expose it to the air uh, the dry environment co2 will capture so this was very good but the problem was all of these processes across the board right all the four bins the flux which is a very basic unit uh, moles of co2 captured per unit area per unit time right? And if I, if I pick the unit as moles per or millimoles per square meter per second, in one second, in one square meter area, how many millimoles of CO2 can be captured? And you won't believe it, it, it was ranging in the range of uh, 10 to the power minus nine uh, picomoles, right? Because 10 to the power minus nine millimoles is a picomoles uh, to 10 to the power minus six or minus four uh, in the best case scenario right? Uh, millimoles per square meter per second. And I did, you know, quick math. You know, if, if, if the artificial leaf I have to make, how much CO2 I need to capture? And, you know, we know, all know every person breathe out about a kilogram of a CO2 in a day. And if you're sitting in a room, uh, you, you the, the amount of area you need uh, range from 100 square meter all the way to um, 10,000 square meter just to capture one kilogram of CO2. So that was very discouraging. like you know entire idea of artificial photosynthesis is is for it to be uh, portable right it It should be up applied and and at that point, conversion of c o two as I said to fuel or any other thing is not it was not challenging, and still it's not challenging. The challenging part was capturing c o two from the air. So that got us started into, hey, we got to develop a technique which uh, really, uh, you know, is is fast, is fast and is efficient. Um, And we came up with this idea, right? Uh, Starting with Lackner's idea of moisture swing, we thought, why can't we implement in a continuous manner? So again, uh, recalling moisture swing process is is a process where you take a basic membrane, expose it to the dry air. It becomes carbonate or bicarbonate enriched membrane. You then expose it to the water vapor; it uh, it releases CO2. So instead of doing this stepping process, we we can think of a continuous process in which one side of the membrane has dry air, other side of the membrane is humidified. So 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 the 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 dry air side will have bicarbonates, and the humidified will will try to take off or take out all the bicarbonate and release CO2. So we, we developed this process called moisture gradient process so we created a gradient of moisture which will drive um, co2 um into the the, the moist area now uh, this is good because now we can come up with the construction of a, a artificial leaf where we have artificial photosynthetic system a photo system with catalyst um, and now i can I can enclose this artificial photosynthetic system, which mostly has liquid, with this membrane, and in doing so, um, you know, outside environment is dry, inside is wet, and the st- same principle applies. CO2 will keep on going in as the water goes out. But when we started testing out, you know, we so that was our paper number one, where we we came up with the concept of you know making an artificial leaf which is standalone. Uh, we, we did some testing in the lab, and this process, which is diffusion-based, and diffusion is generally very slow, bicarbonate on the from the dry side of the membrane going into the wet side as CO2 was very low, uh, diffusion uh, flux. How do we speed up this process? So then we came up uh, with an idea of uh, uh, applying electric field, and we know, you know, For example, uh, a good example is electrodialysis. We have a membrane, you have ions on each side. When you apply electric field, uh, negative ions move towards positive plate, positive ion moves towards negative plate, right? We know that. So here um, we take an ion exchange membrane, an ion exchange is uh, the same membrane which I was referring to, membrane with background charges which are positive. So it essentially can carry only negative ions, right? Um, bicarbonate is negative ion. Very good. Now, I can apply electric field across this membrane and try to push bicarbonate ions more uh, towards the wet side where my positive plate is. Positive plate, uh, you know, uh, is going to attract, attract negative ions. So there, now I have a dial. A dial is like a knob. And this knob is, is I call it, current knob. Current is, you know, the, the, the rate at which ions are flowing. And I can really turn up and turn down this knob to control the rate of bicarbonate transfer to the wet side. And then on the wet side, CO2 is evolving. So I'm selectively capturing CO2 from the dry side, which is flue gas or the air. And based on the current that I've applied, the uh, CO2 will will start evolving, right, the rate of CO2. And that was our our second paper, which is um, migration driven. Migration is, you know, the uh, diffusion in presence of uh, electric field um and then that that was essentially a game changer because now we can have co2 flux i I remember i mentioned the range which is out there in all the technologies is 10 to the power minus 9 to 10 to the power minus 6 millimoles per square meter per second our technique can go up to one millimole or two millimole per square meter per second Right now we can think of, you know, which is two orders of magnitude higher than any other technique. Now we can think of putting this um, CO2 capture process in your house and uh, a, a unit which is the size of a humidifier can balance all the CO2 which is released by a person. So this is sort of a very brief summary of how I started from Jcap and how we you know, developed this technology.
5: Oh my gosh, we are all so interested. We have—I um, have to tell you that we're in—in in our uh, club chat. We're saying we wanted—we want to just do all of this. We want to go and do a science experiment with you. Um, mm-hmm. Jamie was mentioning to the, this. We're—we're we're really um, enthralled, intrigued, and thank you so much. Um, yeah, Caterina, would you like to have the mic? And there you
9: go
1: uh yeah yeah thank you for giving us this um like background of your personal of um, becoming a scientist combined with your history how this research came about that was really interesting and and very insightful i really appreciate that do you want to start uh, taking questions or do you still want to keep um presenting so
6: see that that's that's uh, <laughs> you know thing that i can never stop right i can keep talking about all of this and go into the detail but i think it's better that we do a, a, you know in in, in, a, in an interactive way so you know ask me questions you know about anything right how do we implement this how do i do this in my home uh, or any any question that you can think of and let's do an interactive way of learning
1: perfect okay people um, <laughs> everyone go ahead Place your mic. Ask your question, and uh, Denise, yeah, go ahead.
2: So I am absolutely amazed at the fact that you can fit a this device into the form factor of a humidifier, and it's going to get you net zero um, from human exhalation. That's mind blowing. That's amazing. My curious, uh, my curiosity is. What is the cost currently? And of course, understanding that once production scales up, uh, economies of scale kick in and the and the cost will be reduced dramatically.
6: All right, very good question. So uh, thinking about, so there are two things here, right? A standalone CO2 capture unit, which will only, you know, going to capture CO2 and probably store it um, or maybe vent it out you know, at least it will keep your house less of a CO2 level, and all the CO2 will go out. So that's process one. The process two is uh, you attach an uh, artificial photosynthetic system, and, and you can convert it to some chemical, which is of industrial use. So I'll, I'll talk about economics of the, the first process where you only capture CO2. Now, this process can be implemented uh, in a household humidifier, right? And 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 there you need a system which is referred to as or commonly known as electrodialysis unit electrodialysis unit is um, is an electrochemical cell which has two plates positive and negative plate and it, in between two plates you have a pair of membranes um, bipolar membrane and ion exchange membrane bipolar and ion exchange in repeating order so what it does is you you can feed um, you can feed um, a dilute solution. A dilute solution could be you know your air going in, um, and of course it has liquid. And and on the other um, the other liquid, you know there are two liquids. So there's a dilute solution and there is a concentrated solution. And that concentrated solution will be CO2 enriched. Now this humidifier. Um, uh, and the reason i call it humidify because um, you know you you can humidify your environment as well as you can because the the you can think of air going into the system and and the co2 will be absorbed by the membrane and and what comes out is air with water right so it's humidified naturally and and the co2 goes in right into, in, into the wet side uh, of the of the process now, in terms of cost, uh, there are two costs associated here. One is electricity, because you need to you know, apply certain potential and current, so that's electrical power. Um, and the second cost is uh, is a cost of the unit itself, the capital cost. Now, depending on the size, um, it, it can it can go um, you know uh, anywhere from few hundred dollars all the way to big size, uh, which would be you know 1 million or close to that now for for a small scale um, the cost we calculated by combining the material cost as well as electricity cost came out to be around 150 dollars per ton of co2 of course we are not uh, capturing um co2 in a at a rate of tons but you can multiply you can multiply for example you you're capturing one kilogram per day or maybe um, tens of kilograms per day it's, it's a big house and it will give you sort of a cost rate and and why there's a rate well you know i bought a humidifier size unit um, but there is also consumables in here and the consumable is the membranes it's just like you know we have humidifier and we replace um uh, um the 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 membrane or uh, the thing that cartridge that comes come, comes in in the humidifier so that's a consumable item you you replace every year or so right so here these membranes are not replaced every year they are pretty stable uh, for up to five years or so and for that lifetime five years of lifetime if, if you account for that um and assuming that this goes on for um, 10 years or so a couple of replacement this is the cost uh, which will come out to be over 10 years so is that 150 per ton over 10 years is that what i heard but uh, so 150 uh, per ton and you multiply tons per year because uh, 10 kilograms per day you can multiply by 365 days that will be tons per year and that will be the your cost per year
2: got it understand um and out of the capital cost the membrane being consumable but not having to be replaced very frequently is that the is that the biggest part of the cost basis or is it like the frame obviously the electrons can be pretty inexpensive depending on where you are
6: so here relatively speaking uh the cost if i put it in in decreasing order uh, the highest cost is is the membrane cost um and then comes the the, uh, the electrodes um and and after that probably the electricity electricity is the cheapest among all of this what's what's the
9: um uh, energy per per mole
6: uh energy per mole is uh is 1 2130 kilojoules per mole that much energy you need to spend to capture one mole of co2 thermodynamically if you uh, you know using gibbs um, free energy calculation rt log of concentration uh, in the dilute source divided by the concentration in the concentrated source. If you apply that uh, thermodynamic relationship, uh, the the energy comes out from that formula f- for capturing CO2 from the air is about 108 kilojoules per mole. So pretty close to thermodynamic limit.
9: That's the limit for bicarbonate, right?
6: Uh, I mean, oh, for,
9: for, for sodium carbonate as, as the capture sorbent, right?
6: uh the r energy calculation or the thermodynamic one
9: the the thermodynamic one that you just uh, mentioned
6: oh yeah thermodynamic the formula is delta g is equal to r t log of concentration in the dilute source divided by concentration in the um uh capt- oh, like oh, okay. concentration
9: okay so so that's that's so, independent of of your sorbent got it exactly
6: independent of the sorbent yes so,
2: uh,
9: question? Uh, yeah, so I um, you know
4: fascinating work and your price per ton is very impressive. I noticed you had um, a variety of products, fuel based products. Um, could you um, say a little bit more about um, the distribution of those products and um, you know what likelihood or uh, options you might have to select summer or others? And as a second question, um, I'm curious on uh, barriers to scaling. I'll appear to your chemical engineering background. Uh, What would would be the barriers to scaling uh, much larger installations for uh, more aggressive carbon capture?
6: Very good question. So the first question, as I understand, you you want to see if I want to use the captured CO2 and make fuels or chemicals, uh, what would be... You know the chemicals which would make more sense. Um, is that right? The first question.
4: Well, yeah. Let me let me just add some more context. Um, it's uh, you know carbon neutral if if you know we then go around and just burn the fuel products. But if we can um, either polymerize or somehow create materials that can be feedstocks for uh, more stable or longer life materials, um, that could be a carbon negative process.
6: Right. So, right. Okay, so uh, very good question. So towards that, uh, we are we have been working, uh, since 2019, with world's largest biopolymer producer, uh, Braskem. It's a Brazilian company. They have the largest uh bioethylene plant. Uh, they make green plastics, and they have. Uh, and we are the only one who is committed with them, to uh, make green plastic. Now that's where your carbon neutrality comes in. Uh, if you can capture CO two and use that CO two to make ethylene, um, and 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 make polyethylene, uh, that would be you know uh, a carbon stored right uh, for a long time. Um, and out of all the chemicals, we did a survey once, and you know if you if you take chemicals across the board, like all the chemicals produced in chemical industry, uh, it is ethylene, ammonia and methanol these are the three top chemicals which has the largest greenhouse gas emission associated with them. rank goes like ammonia is first because you know fertilizer food uh, we use a lot second is ethylene and third is methanol so if i have to pick carbon-based products um, the ethylene is first and the second is methanol and if you can make those um, it can really make a, a big impact now talking about uh well there are other products too i I can i can say like for example you can also think about making uh acidic acid which is very much used in fermentation process you can um you can also think about making um uh, ethanol so there are there are chemicals which may not have a good appeal in terms of reducing carbon emissions but um, for local need Uh, it would fit very well so now now talking about the scale of things so we we did all this basic research lab-based research and at some point when things are working fine um, and better than what you expected you you start thinking about scaling up and uh, now we are entering in phase two uh, with Draskim, and uh, in the phase two we we are making scaling up this carbon capture process uh, to capture co2 at the rate of 300 kilograms per hour um, and it will make several tons of it will capture several tons of co2 um, and and converting that captured co2 to ethylene at the rate of 30 kilograms per hour which is I would say a very low capacity I mean, it's still very high if you think about it, capturing 300 kilograms is a pretty large amount. Uh, but in terms of the scale, the actual scale what you know any polymer company would would implement, it would be the scale of one ton per hour of ethylene, right in, in that scale. So we are about you know two orders of magnitude low um, in terms of that scale. Now for that one, we will be establishing, setting up this carbon capture and conversion plant. My company, um, it's EndRams. Uh, they will be setting up in south of Chicago, and um, and the plant, uh, the size wise, it's uh, it's uh, the the CO2 capture unit is as big as your bookcase, um, and there are four such bookcases. You can think in that way. Uh, and each bookcase is sort of capturing about 75 kilograms per hour of co2 Um, and co2 conversion unit uh, has an electrolyzers which which can take the captured co2 and make ethylene and that's uh, of the size of 100 square meters and they work hand in hand um to to
1: continue uh, penoli
6: I'm sorry. Hot, hot mic
1: there. I'm so sorry.
6: My daughter was, I was, I'm sorry. That's fine. So yeah, that's, that's a scale. Uh, we are, we, 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 we did the PNID process and instrumentation diagram. We, we did the scale up, find the geometry, how the reactor is going to look like we have a manufacturing partner. They are fabricating those sometime, uh, in, by by the end of this year we'll we'll start setting up the reactors
4: well that's um that's amazing in terms of the rates and the size and i'm sure you've looked at the business case i guess one thing in terms of um you know addressing a larger scale issue is um an appreciation for the problem at hand driving the business case um, but could you do you have any numbers off the top of your head in terms of cost effectiveness and um, Attractiveness to actually scale this up in a in a very large scale
6: yeah, uh, so cost effectiveness uh, And the energy effectiveness are the two different things uh, in terms of cost Well, it, it is the, the capital cost is is, is there it, it's significant um the reactors are you know the cost of these reactors range from half a million each reactor each bookcase um and and energy consumption will be in terms of uh, megawatts a megawatt hour of electricity um but but in this electricity is not spent in well there are two parts right one is co2 capture you're capturing co2 and that you can think of energy gone completely into capturing co2 you're not producing anything right there's no storage of electricity right there but for the co2 conversion unit you're storing electricity in ethylene so that there is you know the energy efficiency of that process is pretty high but the energy efficiency of co2 capture is energy gone in waste right Uh, capturing the waste to, to concentrate co2 so but there's no way around. I mean, to capture CO2, you have to pump in your energy and that has to be a clean energy to make the case. Um, so we are hoping uh, to, you know, and not hoping, but if this has to be implemented, this the electricity must be derived from renewable source like solar plants or uh, wind wind farms.
4: Great. Um, Yeah, I have more questions, but I want to give other people a chance to to ask questions as well. Sure.
1: Um, I have a question. So since you talked about the dimension of having a home humidifier type of, um, how realistic is it that we have in the near future devices like this in homes, maybe powered by solar panels since, I guess right now with the amount of electricity you would need, it's not maybe not realistic yet, but maybe in the future.
6: Yeah, uh, so you know, business case must be made uh, for these, and I think the closest one right right now, what I can think of and not think of, we are working with a company in California, um, R Zero. They they are thinking of uh, implementing these capture system as you know near the HVAC of of a large building. So think of a uh, a shopping mall or a commercial building which is closed, um, and and there is a HVAC system, and there the the air coming from the building um, can be the CO two can be captured. And that air can be recirculated in in in, in the building. Now this makes a uh, much more appealing uh, argument for for colder places like Canada or or any other. Because see, uh, there, if 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 you have a closed building, you can't keep on recirculating the air inside because the CO2 will build up. It's not it's not healthy. So you need to take air from outside, but when you take cold air from outside, you, you're you're pumping lot of energy to heat up the air. Now imagine instead of pumping that much energy to heat up the air, you can you can you can put that energy to clean up the the CO2. Uh, that can make um, a nice um, argument, but but there are places where you know the energy factor doesn't come in into play and that's you know my 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 home country india um if you if you see delhi which is the capital of india the air is so unbreathable over there and uh, you don't think about energy right there because it's a health issue right you know and you need to clean up the air for the better health so different places different geographic location you know, the, these things can come in. And I see the very first place where it, you will see, start seeing this as a product would be, um, uh, you know, connected with your HVAC system in, in in large building. And once those are successfully implemented, then na- scaling it down to uh, a humidifier scale, that probably will be a next step.
1: Yeah, I would imagine also in very hot, dry places, wouldn't that also like, uh to have the humidity uh, with cleaning up the air, wouldn't that yeah. just make sense? Yeah. Instead they, of just having an AC running?
6: Right, right. So, you know, those hot places, like, um, I know, New Mexico, uh, there, and many places in, in California, there they have droughts, right? Water issue is there. Uh, air is so dry. Um, so, yeah, places like those will have a different need.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's really exciting. And what about uh, space travel? Um, are you working also on projects that are space travel related?
6: Not not yet, but I, I, I this is not too far because you know eventually you're looking at, in a sustainable living in a confined space, a confined meaning closed environment. And this will be coming up in the near future. Uh, if, you, if you think about, you know, uh, Elon Musk's uh, mission to Mars or um, longer space travels, those are the confined spaces. And you do need a process which are, you know, efficient in capturing CO2 uh, and cleaning up that confined space. And this will come no matter what um, in the near future.
2: Two quick questions. Uh, when you say hot, could you specify that? And also I was curious if the other contaminants in the air um, interfere with the process and how you know, how important that is to consider.
6: Yeah, hot, uh, well, that I, I really don't know because uh, I think that was Katrina's reference to hot weather uh, but I'm looking at California or New Mexico. I don't know how hard it goes, but I know about India. Like the temperature can go about forty-seven degree Fahrenheit, uh, degree Celsius. I'm sorry. So that's that's really hot. Um. Now the second thing that you asked was I forgot. Particulate matter contamination. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So air uh, has dominantly nitrogen oxygen um and then there are minor components which is um, particulate matters co2 hydrocarbons and other things so interestingly this process um, is only selective to co2 out of all the components in the air um except the particulate matters i mean if there is particulate matter which is not so difficult because even you know our house filters, they, they are efficient in, in taking out all, all the particulate matters. Uh, so that's not a problem. And remaining everything else in the air, uh, you can feed and the, the process will specifically react with CO2 only. Because if eventually we're talking about the reaction of, of OH minus hydroxide, and hydroxide only reacts with CO2. CO2 is the only acid in the air, other than NO2, if you can think of, but that's pretty low level.
2: Yeah, I was thinking of the the sulfur and nitrous oxide.
6: um, Yeah, sulfur isn't there, but but N2O, acid rain, right? Yeah, it's there.
7: So thank you so much, Manish, for, I mean, presently wonderful work with us. My question, out of curiosity, did you ever think about that, try your model with the, I mean, expansion in a aqueous environment, for example, because it's going to be the different pressure, different potential gradient and everything, and you might need to choose different material. That was just out of curiosity. Did you think about that?
6: A closed environment uh, household uh, with a different air, uh, characteristics
7: yeah, I mean, uh, yes, different characteristic, but not exactly in a model that you just explained, if you want oh, to put it in a, yeah, a uh, environment.
6: Okay, 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 yeah. So I, I think um, air, you know, the quality of air varies uh, from place to place. In fact, quality of air inside your house, inside the room where you're sitting right now, varies over, over time. Um, you know, this is just out of, out of my interest I was seeing you know what is the level of co2 uh in, in, a, in a room so when you're sleeping in your bedroom and depending on whether your bedroom is closed or open the level of co2 can go all the way up to 2000 ppm uh, if you put a co2 monitor uh, next to your place so the now that that um, sort of uh, is important because if you if if the process which we have developed is uh, is is taking out CO two uh, from 400 ppm and now suddenly the air has 2,000 ppm or even more, um, you need to you you can't simply operate at the same load. You, you the load has to be adjusted accordingly. So. Well, I think in, in that case, I don't know if there are any, any other case that you might be thinking of, but in those cases where the CO2 level fluctuates quite a lot, um, there you need to have a control system where you are sensing CO2 continuously and, uh, and, and, and based on the level of CO2, the current is applied to the electrodialysis system to bump up the CO2 capture rate or, or, or decrease it um you also don't want like you know if you have uh 100 400 ppm of co2 you 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 try to lower it down to 10 or 20 ppm because your nat- natural life around it if you have plants or other things they will be affected with uh with lowering down co2 so yes uh and 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 combining the sensor with the control is, is very common. In, in fact, it's it's common in, in your air conditioning system, right? You, you sense the temperature and the air condition try to control it, so it, it's pretty common.
7: Yeah, it might be very different approach as long as you talk about the diluted, I mean, gas or such a thing, but it can be reversed actually.
6: Yeah.
1: Yeah,
4: yeah, sorry, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to ask if anyone else had any questions before I um, ask some more detailed ones.
2: I had a quick one. Um, in terms of potential to use physics rather than electricity to fuel this uh, this process, is there, any potential there? Uh, what
6: was the first thing? Physics? Yeah. To use,
2: uh, you know, we're talking about, um, pressure differentials and temperature differentials. Is there any way to perhaps rather than using electrons
6: use, um, direct solar power? Uh, right. Uh, yes. Solar power can be used. You can have a solar panel and that solar panel can generate electrons and these electrons can drive the CO2 capture process. That can be done. Uh, the other thing is uh, simply a moisture gradient. You don't apply a, a electric potential. Keep the dry air on one side and wet atmosphere on the other side. The process will be very low. The, the, the speed of CO2 capture will be very low, but it will still be active. Uh, so that's the, that's what we call, like, at least you know, in our lab, we call those systems as a passive system where you don't apply external field. Um, just based on the diffusion, um, you you keep capturing CO two. Uh, and as you mentioned,
2: diffu- diffusion is a very slow process. So yeah. I, yeah. I understand. I understand.
4: Well, okay, so um, I'm curious about uh, expanding in two directions. So sure, solar was mentioned, but other types of renewables, solar, wind, any, any other type of renewable uh, source of energy is of interest. But in terms of the downstream process, and and I want to come back to the business case a little, but not um, talk finance, talk, you know, a deeper deeper product chain in terms of the chemistry and and entry points to to materials. The plastics industry didn't grow up overnight, but the the feedstock chemicals in terms of if we can take an aggressive posture to plastics derived from petroleum and fossil fuel sources, and we want to put in place an economic, um, processing chain where we've captured the CO two and we've got some um, fuel products, but you know you mentioned ethene um, for polyethylene and methanol, but if um, in terms of uh, a disruptive approach towards displacing the feedstock materials through carbon capture, um can you uh can you offer insights in what that might look like i'm sh- i'm sure you've thought about it in you know time or two
6: right uh, so making sure that i understand this so we we use uh, fossil fuel to drive and let's keep like ethylene as as our case study so they they use fossil fuel naphtha cracker and then and then they make ethylene now if i want to displace the fossil fuel and still make plastic uh, i can use co2 from the atmosphere or i can use a co2 from other processes for example um, but i do still need uh, energy to convert co2 to to ethylene so so idealistically like like uh, if if this is the process where i'm not using any fossil fuel as as a feedstock i'm using co2 and making ethylene the current state of technology is such that uh the the, the cost of taking co2 which is a very uh, you know a uh, small uh, molecule uh, low in energy and all the way to et- ethylene you need to pump a lot of energy to this process making the process at least economically not at all feasible as compared to traditional fossil based process um, so and and as you have seen all the technologies and one of the technology here is you know uh, a gasoline based car and moving uh, away from gasoline based cars car to electric vehicles uh, policies must come into the place right from government side subsidies must come into the place so a gradual transition um, is required uh, and at least uh, you know for for several years from now you can still think of this process but not now we we have enough fossil uh, based sources uh, The best we can do at at this point is minimize, gradually reduce the dependence from fossil. So if I'm using, for example, 10 tons of naphtha to make one ton of ethylene, um, and and in that process, I'm releasing a lot of CO2, I I can start implementing these novel process where I can take CO2 reduce the naphtha load reduce the fossil fuel load and gradually increase this proportion as we advance in our technology um, so so that needs to be hap- you know need to happen gradually at this point uh, it, it is still there uh, but not in in a way of what what, what is still there meaning uh, if you, if you go to petrochemical industry which is making ethylene they are still doing carbon capture but not using that co2 to make ethylene so that needs to happen, right? Which will reduce their uh, uh, the naphtha requirement, right? Well, that would certainly be a
4: start, but, um, and let's say that that's achieved. But in terms of uh, higher order polymers um, or um, types of construction materials or resins or other types of uh, valuable materials that would still have, yeah. Um, and, you know, have you have you thought through that or looked at that? I mean, yeah, point, it, there's a
9: business case
6: there. Yeah, different kinds of feedstock. I mean, uh, of course, I have thought about this, uh, but the the path is so diverse at this point. I mean, you can imagine, um, you know, for example, you can start from CO2 and you can make uh, um, a propylene, and propylene is uh, it can be used to make polypropylene, right? um or one can think of making aromatic compounds from co2 uh and diversify there to make different other things so there is there are parts but uh conceptually i would say at this point technologies which can really take co2 and make aromatics or higher order uh compounds are aren't there yet I mean most of the technologies go up to C1 products and C2 products at this point you can think of making C1 products like ethylene formic oh sorry methane formic acid carbon monoxide uh C2 products like ethanol or ethylene C3 is rare there is none in C4 so we are moving up in in carbon order uh, but that progress is pretty slow
4: And, and is it, in terms of that progress, is that the lack of a business case or economic viability, is that what is really slowing the research?
6: No, it is the, the advancement in, in terms of uh, fundamental understanding of these reactions, why, why we cannot make C3 products, C4 products, and, and gasoline and diesel, they are like C18, right? We're very, very large carbon products um it just the fundamental science needs to take you know uh to to overcome these barriers and and, and as we speak people are working towards uh, right now c4 products so once c4 is achieved then go to c5 recently there was l- like a moonshot uh, in a way of thinking about uh taking co2 and make glucose uh c6 product and uh there, there are no reports right now, but uh, people are trying. in In Berkeley, I know, uh, University of California, uh, to to take CO two and make sugar, and that again, mm-hmm. you know, is, is is of good great importance because once you can start making sugar, that's it. You can you can pretty much uh, survive in a long space mission without running out well, of well, certainly,
4: because that enters into the food chain at that point. At
6: yeah, that point, exactly.
4: Were they successful?
6: No, no, it's still uh, under research. Um, I haven't seen any reports so far. Nobody, uh, in fact. Hmm. It's, a, it's Peidong Yang uh, in chemistry. Uh, he's working on CO2 glucose. So let, I'll, I'll hazard a
4: guess. You left chemical engineering once before. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that you're going to go on. You're going to stay in research have you had any thoughts about what research problems are next for you?
6: Right. Uh, so right now, um, we are trying to solve the problems, you know, my group as well as majority of other groups. We are focused on uh, cement uh, as, as the top number, number one problem because you know, the largest CO2 emitter is the cement. For every kilogram of cement used, there's a kilogram of CO2 emitted. So uh, cement, uh, sort of making carbon neutral cement is, is, a, is a goal and, and a holy grail. Um, so that's one. The second thing is making fertilizers, ammonia, directly from nitrogen at uh, uh, using artificial photosynthetic system. So that's pretty hard. We are working towards that again that sort of addresses your food chain problem because ammonia is a key uh, element uh, and and as the only source of amino acids and the nitrogen in your body Uh, that's the second one so
4: that would be through like a modified hopper process
6: oh yes yes Uh, how Bosch Mm -hmm. process has a lot of co2 emissions associated with it Mm -hmm. so if you if you can tackle cement and the Haber Bosch you have pretty much curbed down all the co2 uh, which which has been going up uh, plastic is the third one um, and there you again you have a lot of issues not only making plastics but uh, degrading plastics uh, now there is a new pollutant coming up micro and nanoplastics in water you know your people are finding plastic uh, accumulates in in body and kidneys uh, so it's it's, it's, a, it's a big problem we are thinking of, capturing plastics um, also. Um,
4: mm-hmm. Well, if you're yeah, gonna actually, go crack nitrogen, there might be a route into amino acids as well.
6: Uh, yes, breaking down nitrogen is very, uh, very challenging. N2 is the strongest bond, um, and that requires very high temperature, very, very a large amount of energy. So we are, we are, we are innovating processes which, which can d- be done in a more distributed manner um, not like a centralized Hubbard-Bosch process. And then the other thing is the natural gas, because uh, uh, once I think uh, natural gas and coal, these are the two, another, you know, two more important uh, fossils, which will last longer than your crude oil. Crude oil probably going to, you know, uh, go off first, but your natural gas and coal will, will, will remain longer. Uh, for long years so using coal diversification of a coal is is a big problem um, and there is a lot of uh, interest here as well because you see all the chemicals everything that you see around in your house is made of crude crude oil right uh, not much coal so coal is underutilized and mostly used for burning if you can use coal to make your 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 chemicals uh, and and polymers and other thing uh that will give us, uh, you know, a little more fuel to go forward. Uh, uh, you know, if you are depleting fossil fuel in the next 50 years, probably coal, with coal, we can last longer. Um,
9: just, just a quick side note, though, um, and, and it is a, a solvable problem, but the economics do not seem to favor solving it. Um, uh, coal mining is actually a major source of methane
6: emissions yes yes i forgot about that actually i was coming coming to that natural gas so you know uh, uh, this biden administration has put a strict restriction on uh, methane emissions and methane is uh, 20 times more potent uh, greenhouse gas than co2 so well methane- actu- actually
9: actually uh, 100 times during the first year right? oh, 100
6: times oh yeah 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 it's
9: it's over a century that that you you have the degradation in the atmosphere that
6: averages to 20 absolutely correct so you know now thinking of processes which can capture methane from atmosphere there is none out there nothing so now people are thinking and inventing processes which can capture methane from atmosphere or in fact capture methane from the point source uh, you know flaring of natural gas that that you can see all the flares um, as you go through a petrochemical um, or refinery so capturing can see some of them from space i'm sorry some of those flares you can see from space oh yes 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 i know yeah yeah so uh, this is another thing that we are working on um, how we can capture methane and convert methane to a better fuel a cleaner fuel like methanol
4: Would you have any um, uh, strategies of, for methane capture that you can tell us about?
6: It's, I, at this point, it's all um, uh, proprietary. Uh, we, are, we are working in our lab. Uh, we have seen some efficiencies, um, oh. but it is not patented yet. So, uh, But I can say it's based on the electrochemical process. Uh, we can capture methane uh, from dilute source and concentrate it.
3: Um Naaman, you have a question? Yes, for Manish. Um, yes. So, what you're referring to is that industrial methane, Manish? Capturing industrial methane from the source?
6: Yes. So, when, right when now we are just, drilling
3: for methane?
6: Right. Uh, so, the regulation opposed to all industry is uh, cutting down methane emission by 99.9%. Um, so, really, up to you're allowed to emit close to you know, ten thousand ppm um, or so of methane. So, taking that uh, methane um, and and reducing the emission is uh, via capturing of methane is is our first target. Once we are successful, then we will aim towards atmospheric, which is much more challenging.
3: Sure, and I'm just curious what what I mean. If we're talking about any kind of atmospheric carbon capture, I mean you're talking large machines that require metal that require mining that probably require destruction of forests for that kind of mining that require energy to run so i mean do you honestly think like atmosphere i know you're saying it's hard but do you even think it's feasible in yeah. reality and will it take less energy uh, so to I, run? I mean will it will the emissions of the machines be lower or low enough or preferably zero
6: Yeah, I think that you have made a very good point. Uh, The the pain point here, dealing with air, the the largest energy consumption is processing the large volume of air. Because if we are talking about 400 ppm of CO2 and 20 ppm, for example, or or low of methane, um, to uh, capture any significant amount, you need to process volumetric flow rates of air so high that you you will have a very large uh, pumping cost and and that is the biggest problem you know the right right now climb works uh, they have implemented direct air capture unit um and, and there they have big fans processing large amount of air and that is i think the limiting factor in any of the air capture process and that will be and this this will require a large amount of tur- number of turbines materials um yeah
4: Have you given thought to ocean-based capture?
6: And my colleague is doing that. Captura, Captura just received one million from Elon Musk, uh, and Captura is uh, is uh, taking CO two from you know now you can you can take seawater and electrodialyze the seawater to to release CO two. So and then you have no restriction on the land area here because it's all uh, available ocean area. So you can pretty much put large solar panels on on ocean and capture CO2 and make uh, fuels for ships. Ships can come in, fuel up their tank and go. So that's the capture emission, uh, CAPTURA, CX and Harriet Water, they are are doing that.
4: Just for fuel or are they also looking at carbon negative processes?
6: I think, uh, for fuel at this point but also carbon negative processes for different chemicals eventually
4: was well, fascinating work a uh, very important very important problem to solve um, all the new technology and research that you're bringing to it wonderful advance. Um, are there other people with questions? Well, I,
9: I just want to quickly note, I, I, I redid the calculation and it, it didn't agree with what you said. <laughs> and I, I just felt off. And then I saw it in, in your paper. It's it's uh, 20 kilojoules uh, per mole is, is um, the free energy for, uh, uh, you know, going to well, yeah, 400 got, ppm. Exactly.
6: My mind is not helping me here. Okay,
9: you're right. You're right. And and the um the uh, the reason that just like wait, what's wrong here is is that I'm I'm did some work on uh, a particular sorbent and, and it, it it came out lower. I mean, I was working on on the enthalpy of it right? And I just did that calculation It came up. The the two came out lower than that. It's like, wait, something is wrong here. I hope I didn't screw that up in the past. Uh, I,
6: I was wrong. It's 20. <laughs> yeah, right. Um,
0: oh, hi, uh Minesh. Uh, thanks uh, uh, for sharing your uh, great research with us. Just quick question by browsing the paper you shared that the, when you, uh, in the introduction section, you said the, the light absorber has a optimal uh, band gaps. Uh, what are the op- optimality that uh, uh, is concerned here in your research?
4: Manish, are you there? Uh,
0: in it seems that my signal is uh, not good. Uh, did you uh, hear my question?
9: It, Manish, you're, you're yeah. muted if you're talking.
4: Manish, are you able to hear us? Um, you may need to unmute your mic.
9: You're current, currently the, muted. The lower uh, mic, I, or lower right corner.
2: I think it may be a connectivity issue on the side.
5: Manish, sometimes it's helpful to go off of Wi-Fi when that happens. I've had that situation.
4: Well, and I was just about to ask how much of how much longer do we have you? Uh, We've been going for over an hour, but I'm not sure you can hear.
1: Mm, I texted Manish, but uh, let's see if he's getting that. If his his app is not working, then he might also not not get. Uh... Well, um, yeah, I don't know what to do. Right, but <laughs> anyone never <a> solves. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, we sort of went out like a candle. Huh?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's probably something with the app.
5: Well, app? it's been a brilliant room, and and we did get to hear the whole discussion and carry through for the hour.
1: That's true. It was really excellent um, presentation, and it's an amazing technology. I'm really impressed. So. Um, whatever just came, um, we we went through um, the whole presentation. You can check out the papers in the link that I pinned. There are two of um, Dr. Singh's papers that we just talked about. And uh, he answered also a lot of our questions and currently we are having <laughs> Technical issues, uh, but um, in case they are not resolved today anymore, we went through all of the presentation and uh, you can listen to the recording and probably will get your answers there. Um, but while we are checking out what is going on, yeah, please feel free to um, chat, or maybe Frank, did you want to comment something in particular?
0: Uh, yeah, I was uh, just working through the paper and, and uh, got a question on the, uh, I don't know if um, uh, my question was heard because I also experienced uh, connection issues, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, my earlier question is on the uh, band gap design.
1: Yeah, I don't th- I didn't hear the question. Did Serena, did you hear the question?
4: Well, Frank's question? Yeah. About, well, the optimality of the band gap was mentioned in the paper and he was asking about the particular optimality that, that was under focus. Um, yeah. And that's when the, uh, the, the app went out. Yeah. So I'm curious, Eli. What did you? What do you think about about this? Um, it's interesting that he seems affiliated with some of the X Prize folks, and um, but I like your point about turning to methane.
9: Yeah, well, I mean, it's y- you know. Uh if uh, we hit tipping points uh there's going to be a lot of met- methane dumped into the atmosphere from uh permafrost uh melt but e- even that is is an uncertainty because you know at least some of it will will be metabolized to carbon dioxide but it's it's really like guesswork to try and figure out how much and my attitude as well let's let's just do our best to figure out you know ways to deal with the worst case and uh I, there are a few yeah.
4: Well, it was interesting. He wasn't going to give us any clues about his approach to methane capture. Well, no, he, it's a pretty he, tough he, did, he did say that
9: it was um, electrolysis and um, there... Um, I can, I can think of actually some, some papers that I read in 2007 that were, that were in that direction in terms of the electrodes, but of course it would be, have to be combined with a concentration mechanism like the one he's, he's described, right? Um, yeah,
4: that a concentration is certain. It's going to be even harder with methane than CO2. Yeah.
9: Yeah. Methane, if, if you're not. Doing something to change it chemically—it's—it's a slippery customer. (laughs) Uh,
4: You know, methane hydrates in the deep Um, ocean—you know, those those form. It's clear what the you know the phase diagrams are there, but actually getting the methane under those conditions really tricky. Yeah, well,
9: I mean, one of the things that really worries me is that, that you know, with sea level several sea level rise, right? You're adding to the hydrostatic column. So you're increasing the loading, right? Which is probably, so so therefore you're shifting the gas hydrate stability zone, right? And and, uh, I'm not so, I, I don't know this for certain, but my intuition is that the top part of it isn't the big worry. Uh, the bottom part where it's on top of gas in the pore spaces um, is is, you know, where you'll get more destabilization and and the question is you know is this going to be nice homogeneous even loading and and everything just uh uh you know handles the extra load gracefully or do we get catastrophic destabilization due to inhomogeneities
4: well and i had to um on request look into this for you know a mutual friend um in terms of at least in terms of sequestering in, you know you can pick your geography if you're going to be sequestering the carbon and you don't want to pick you know active active fault zones like you point out, <laughs> that would be bad. But in places where you can ensure that there's low tectonic activity and it's very deep ocean, it's um, you know it's stable on geologic time scales, but the places where it's not, um yeah, we could, we could have, you know, planetary-scale belches.
9: It, it was so, so, wait, are you talking about uh, um, liquid CO2? or well, no, the methane about...
4: hydrates in particular. There was a concern that, you know, if there's a biological base sequestration that sunk in the ocean, does deep ocean, you know, metabolism, does it is it going to give off methane? Is that just going to come back up? You know, how do you ensure uh, a longevity of the sequestered carbon? So yeah, I, my, my, my mm-hmm.
9: intuition is, is that it, it, it won't. I, I mean, there with, with, you know, too many caveats to go into, um, at least most of it would, uh, would wind up being diffuse and therefore, even if there are bubbles, they're unlikely to make it to the surface. They're likely to be, it's likely to be metabolized as it goes up the water column, uh, if it, if it mm-hmm. forms bubbles at all. Well, um,
4: also, the methan- methanogens are anaerobic, and so that would happen be happening in the soil, so it would just cling to the soil as a methane hydrate. It's almost like that's, that's yeah. how the,
9: the original methane hy- I mean, all of the methane hybrids that, that, that we see, that's how they formed, right? right. Um, and they're stable on geologic timescales. Yeah. But you know, at, at, if, if you're talking about, you know, the sea floor of the open ocean, that's, that's way below the gas hydrate stability zone and uh, it would be dissolved methane and uh, microbes would, would get it um, uh, is my guess.
4: Well, and deep down those, it just forms hydrates um, for the, you know, you go deep and cold enough and the high pressure and stuff, but. Um...
9: Well, no, ac- well, okay. actually, actually, no, there's, oh. there's, uh-huh. there's a depth below which uh, um, gas hydrates are not stable. And that's, that's what, you know, when you have the deposits along coastlines, Right, there there's sediment below that, and there is gaseous methane in the pore space.
4: Yeah, and um, well, under those pressures and temperatures, uh, like it, for example, at uh, four thousand meters down, as long as you're less than twenty five Celsius, which is just almost everywhere, unless you're near a vent, um, you know, you're you're good. You're good in the methane hydrate zone. But it's when that tectonics comes in, or you know, starts to shift, It's so you get you get problems. But
9: uh... no, I'm I'm double checking that. Not I mean, is I <laughs> because my my recollection, although it's been years since I looked uh, at this. Okay, yeah, here we go. Yeah, Generally... I took a fresh
4: look. I can send you the.
9: Well, okay. Wikipedia says generally the maximum depth of the hydrate stability zone extension is uh, 2,000 meters. Oh, excuse me, below the Earth's surface. Never mind.
4: Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. So, no, it's a stable. It's ocean floor sequestration, lack of tectonics. You're good and solid. Um, Hi, Kuprik. Do you have a question? We were just about to wrap up the room.
8: Yeah, oh, no, I just only arrived. I think I just listened to the end of it. Uh, don't really have many questions, but um, what what I'm interested in uh, are there any computational models that predict uh, introduction of these artificial photosynthesis systems and the results of it or anything like that?
4: Well, the speaker. Um, in the, the papers print, uh, pinned at the top, um, he demonstrates a physical system that's actually uh, operational and in the process of being scaled up. It's really fascinating work. Definitely give it a read um, if you can. Um, but. Um, hey, Serena,
8: no, I'm, I'm aware of it. I'm just wondering is mm-hmm. there a computational model predicting what's going to happen, say, if we introduce. Uh, this on a large scale and so on. Uh, whether there is a possibility, um, like okay, so th- yeah, do you think I need to learn more about the CO two capture? But yeah, uh, I think there's a there's a, there's some sort of danger to have too much oxygen at some point in the atmosphere. But yeah,
4: I I oh like we're a long thing. way from that. There are um, for a given mechanism and you know catalyst system. If you want the computational models, um, you know, there are approaches such as density functional theory to work out, um, you know, energetics of the reactions that you're observing. So, that, that, uh, and so in com- some cases where um, you, you, wanna, you do understand the system and the reactions, you can arrive at those computational models. So that, that is feasible.
9: It's a lot of work. Um, well, was was the question regarding the the chemistry, or was it regarding uh, the climate models for for uh, carbon I dioxide? I believe it's more the atmosphere, atmosphere the, the balance
8: of the the atmosphere. What's the long term influence at um, particular levels? If there's any kind of prediction, um, and and how beneficial it is it's just 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 curious yeah
4: yeah yeah the prediction is we're all doomed if we don't do this on a very large scale um, as fast as we possibly can there's uh, nothing to suggest we're going to get too much oxygen in the atmosphere anytime soon but it's uh, all manner of computational models um, paint a very bleak picture for the effects of climate change if we do not have a large-scale deployment to rein in atmospheric uh, CO2 very quickly.
9: And potentially also methane. uh, And potentially um, methane. If that starts uh, being emitted due, not just to what human beings do, but due to uh, natural feedbacks, climate feedbacks, because of what we've done. In other words, like when, when permafrost thaws Um, there's organic carbon there that, uh, uh, can either be, um, anaerobically fermented to methane uh, and and there's also methane already there. Um, uh, if we're lucky, uh, most of the, um, organic carbon would be metabolized to carbon dioxide instead, but it's, it's really uh, a wide open question, you know, which way it's likely to go. Um, but it, 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 stepping back to, to, I think, the broadest version of your question, um, there, this is what is called. Um, uh, modeling of climate interventions. Um, and, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a large area, but it's not nearly large enough. And, and the models still need to be really, really developed a couple of weeks ago. I was on a call, uh, that included a number of people, but one of them was, uh, Alan Robach at, uh, Rutgers, who works on the GeoMIP modelings. Um, that's, uh, um, I believe it's Geoengineering Model Intercomparison Project. Um, and there, there are a few different kinds of model intercomparison Uh, projects that take all kinds of different climate models and try to, uh, you know, compare them to each other and get a consensus between them and figure out what is and isn't working and so on. But one of the comments that he made, and this is a comment that I made in my talk at the um, ocean sciences meeting in in 2020, uh, was that we really, really, really need uh, to, to get realistic modeling of ecological feedbacks, the interactions going both ways, the effect of climate on ecology and the effect of ecological responses back on, on uh, where the climate goes. And, uh, you know, on the one hand it was, it was uh, rewarding to hear him saying the same thing that I was saying. And another on the other hand, you know, here's somebody who, who spends all of his time focusing on that, and uh, that's where he is, too. <laughs> and so it's kind of depressing that, uh, that we're not much further along on that.
1: Yeah, um, I'm trying to bring you up, um, Harish, uh, but it's not... Work- oh, there you go. Hey, welcome to the stage. Do you have a question? Uh,
0: hello?
4: Hello, we can hear you. Do you have a question?
0: Uh, Yeah, um, I, I was just curious if there's like a... A good resource um, uh, that I could use in a, in a quick conversation or like, because um, sometimes I talk to people who are uh, climate change deniers, and um, I want to see if uh, I, I could point them to a quick reference. Well, uh, the, I, I, for the latest... 24-page, um, you know... Thing that, that's up right there right now. But, um,
4: the latest uh, IPPC report there's is it no IPCC report um, is a good I wonder if I could pull that up.
0: Well the, the thing is a lot of people that I've, I've been talking to they, they seem to think that like the IPCC is like a bunch of brainwashed scientists and they want to see like other
1: um, like independent scientists and
9: um, well, so, so in terms of where scientific consensus is, like on on the really, really important general points, there's there's uh, wide consensus that you know, human uh, uh, climate change is definitely happening. It is. Uh, a a huge and dangerous issue, and it is driven by what humans have done. I mean, there are very few respectable scientists left uh, who can find valid issues to raise against that, right? Now, lots of scientists will debate lots and lots of specific details, and Uh, you know politicians or or, or, uh, commentators can like point at that and say oh see look there's all this uncertainty but you know these are uncertainties at the level of Is it a factor of 2.5 or 2.7 that belongs in this part of the equation, right? Just to to give you uh, an idea of where the debate lies. And I mean, that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but the IPCC report, actually, uh, a lot of climate scientists uh, had to fight to get, you know, the consensus that's there, if anything Uh, IPCC reports are conservative for a variety of reasons one of them is that it is bad for a climate scientist's career to overstate things or be quote an alarmist unquote because that damages their credibility Uh, nobody uh, uh, or whoever delivers the bad news gets a lot of uh, blowback. For it, so if people are delivering bad news, it's probably because they have a really, really solid case, and it, they're probably understating it. And beyond that, the IPCC report explicitly left out three important feedbacks that can make things worse. Not because they're trying to hide anything, but because um, there wasn't enough certainty about, you know, specific ranges. Um, where they could make confident predictions for policymakers, they said we don't have the kind of certainty, the certainties that policies, policymakers want from us, so we are leaving those out. And those feedbacks are permafrost thaw, uh, um, soil soil feedbacks, like when when uh, soil uh, changes for a variety of reasons, it can. Take up less carbon dioxide and start releasing carbon dioxide and methane. And then the just, third one is forest fires.
1: Yeah. So just think about who is making the most money and with what could governments right now make more money with? With listening to the climate change scientists that the environment is screwed and everything is dying. Can you make a profit based on that? Or can you make a profit based on, let's keep making cars as much as we can. Let's keep um, buying fridge and, and buying technology, turning up the AC. With what can you make more money? You
0: making know, more I...
1: stuff, you make more money. And also governments make more money and get more taxes through you buying more stuff. And all these little scientists making really bad wages go against the system, this huge system of money making that that drives all of our economies. And they are asking you to stop. Go. They are going against this huge economy. Wall. Everyone involved. Wall Street. Everyone is interested in making money. And how do you make money? You burn more stuff. You produce you waste more energy to produce more stuff all these tiny scientists are going against it and it's really really hard so claiming that climate scientists are like part of you know the system is completely the opposite it would just just it would just say that big pharma companies (laughs) are like running against the system you know it's it would be just as ridiculous that claim just imagine as a tiny person go against a whole oil company and that's what environmental scientists or climate scientists are doing for years and years now and they'll be constantly trying to get discredited they're they, they, it was actually dangerous for for a lot of them in many countries, to do this work, they were actively harmed um, to do this, and they're still constantly trying to be discredited, and their ro- careers ruined, and so on. If they go against these huge corporations and countries, and, and
9: you know, in in, in Canada, um, there for a while there was a conservative government that was actually suppressing. Uh, the release of, of climate data, because uh, it didn't like the fact that it supported uh, um, the fact that climate was as bad as the data said. Uh, and I remember a quote from an Australian climate scientist that was uh, um, printed in a news article in, I think, Science, or maybe Nature, but I think it was Science, Um uh, when there was a, a conservative uh, government in Australia um, you, who remarked, you know, uh, when you're a climate scientist, but you've got a mortgage and a baby in diapers, you watch what you say.
4: <laughs> yeah, you know, from, from decades of, of this, um, there, I haven't heard a client a climate denial position rooted in science. It's it's it's, it's just the science is solid, and uh, as Eli mentioned, you know where there's debate, it's it's over error bars here and there. But um, you know the scientific consensus for anyone who does independently think about facts, um, there's a you know, it's what's happening in the trends and the relation to anthropogenic carbon emissions uh, as far as scientific trends and data goes is just pretty damn solid.
2: So to put it another way, Hattish, um if people are saying that they haven't read the reports and they don't understand the science.
9: And they've probably also been listening to people who don't want them to read the reports or understand the science. Uh,
1: well,
10: I think it's, uh, I guess uh, we're running out of time, but uh, I think I'm gonna avoid some opinion that's gonna be, make me a very unpopular. Uh, I, I, for one, actually have very serious uh, reservation and doubt over the, these uh, predictions. And I don't think
4: based on uh, what these models much, are based on what Hanson, yeah, uh, based I, on the based models on that
10: I've seen, that uh, I don't think they are accurate enough, um, they uh, having powerful enough uh, predictive power to draw those conclusions.
4: Have you read the IPCC and report?
10: The, I skimmed through it. Uh, they and, and, don't have there's the, nothing
4: uh, compelling uh, coverage. There.
10: They don't have, yes, no, they, they don't have cover the uh, cloud coverage. And then the, the models they're using, uh, I just don't believe they can make a prediction that out of you know uh, 50 years out, and, and within the error bars that they claim, uh, that let's say 10, two, two degrees or 10 degrees uh, error bar, that, that's uh, impossible. Uh, so, we, we are you, about, but are you uh,
4: taking uh, the position? Are you taking the position that carbon emissions is is not a problem?
10: Oh, I don't think you can say that for sure. The uh, uh, the carbon emission, the the uh, the human anthropomorphic um, uh, generated uh, uh, carbon is enough to uh, kind of make a systematic. Um, change in the, such a complex, huge complex system. And I don't think you have enough data to do the computation. So the, even with the the weather.
1: Data data based on ice drilling, we have data based on ice drilling from thousands and thousands of years backwards. So how much data do you need?
10: But have you done out of sample prediction tests?
9: Well, so, and, so, but uh, you, you, know, you know, you the... know that you know that uh, one of the ways that they develop
10: these models. Yeah, no, I have uh, seen the models. They are all statistical, uh, not a rigorous uh, physical models, and I use those yes, statistical models to been... do, do market prediction, they are. and they are just gamble. so
4: Hanson, This is, is
1: not true. this is just. Yeah.
4: Please you're, look you're, this is flying in the face. So. Uh, no,
10: you're just making accusations. Okay, because, I know. I know. I'm going to be very unpopular here, but uh, the so with respect with regard to data. Yeah, excuse
1: me. With, sorry, yeah, Captain. With down.
10: regard to data. I, I mean, it's,
1: it's not
5: about the, popularity. It's not about popularity. It's about the fact that you would come onto the stage, and. Face a body of research and just stand there and say, "I choose not to believe uh, it." I didn't when it's entirely right, at the, or, looked or, at or the data, me, I looked or, at the, uh, I wasn't the, uh, the paper. I wasn't finished. I wasn't finished. Well, I, wasn't finished. I was I
10: mean, you, guys you say are saying me. I
5: don't buy it. So anybody could do that, and it's very contentious. It's not what the stage is for. We're welcome to have discourse. However, just. Everything anybody is offering you to say, no, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. It's not thorough enough. Anybody could say that, but it's not following scientific theory. It's, it's just, is not no, scientific
1: thought. I, I so exactly. thank you the scientific and we, leadership. and we
5: welcome, we welcome you to um, stop this conversation. Yeah.
10: I can't stop. I mean, uh, I, I think you, that we really should continue the conversation.
9: I think that we can engage on this issue in a different format, perhaps. I mean, there, sure. there are, yeah. are some people who, who do climate models who, who I would hope we can invite uh, in the future uh, to discuss their work. I know of two people. Um, I don't know uh, how willing they would be. I know more
1: than two people because I directly collaborated with the Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts because I was at the Marine Biological Institute. We had constantly together um, meetings while I was working there. But I think we are over the stage of uh, having to claim that climate change is reality. I'm not, we're not in the 80s here. It's 2022. <laughs> this was maybe a discussion back in the 80s, but I think now it's ridiculous. I'm sorry. Please get to the knowledge base of 2022, Hansen, and then you may come back and talk about. It. I because think I actually more talk with many experts that than, are actually than, than from than the field. You. Just because you at some point did the PhD does in something doesn't mean you're expert in, in everything. I'm sorry. It's just not true.
9: Uh, so, so the one point that uh, I, I will bring you up in just a second, Hanson. Um, the the one thing that uh, I did want to to point out is that uh, um, the way that climate models are tested, individual climate models, models, not just the intercomparisons, is that you you run them, you know, from a point in the past to Uh, the present over historical data and if they produce discrepant predictions then we know that they're wrong now even though certain physical effects that we know are important may not be explicitly in the model the fact that it's holding together over that kind of a trial says that you you are getting things lumped in and lumping in things is sometimes a necessity in computations of complex uh, uh, physical systems. It's done in much simpler systems, like uh, lumping in relativistic effects in uh, uh, quantum uh, quantum mechanical calculations for quantum chemistry, for example. It is valid. Well, of course,
10: it's I, valid. Uh, uh, it uh, uh, uh,
9: let, let me chime in a little bit
0: the uh i mean, i i a, know, second, on, just uh, just second. Uh, i like i don't know what you mean by uh, relative to that we bad, bad, invite bad. Uh, more like a uh, guest in, in different uh, uh i mean uh, be a pro or or like,
4: sorry uh, i'm
1: doing here cutting edge research um yeah guest so speakers, and i'm not uh, doing 80s research guest speakers i'm not uh, doing I'm, that then you can I make mean, your own club and discuss this in your own club I'm sorry, Uh I'm over the climate change discussion. If you want to participate in actual, real, cutting-edge research that people are currently doing, then please, you're welcome here. If you want to discuss things that we should have been done with in the 70s and 80s, then please, Go to rooms and discuss things there. Thank sure, you. you
10: can dictate that's, it. That's uh, what the I topic. wanted to you uh, want stress Yeah,
1: of it. course. I mean, I'm not your, anything. It. I have a choice, right? To spend my time with, and I have spent a lot of time organizing these rooms. A lot of my hours in a week go into inviting guest speakers, really prominent guest speakers. If you have been here the last two months, and I, it's a lot of effort. So, um, in that Term in that effort, I have the choice, yes, to organize the rooms I would like to organize. You have the choice to organize the rooms you would like to organize. Anyone has the choice. Anyone here on Clubhouse can organize a room and make their own rooms.
9: So, Frank, you were trying to say,
0: Yeah, I was uh, just a uh, uh, I uh, want to say that a uh, uh, science society uh, club so far is uh, the style is not uh, i mean we have a particular day that is open like a uh, uh, forum that's, you know without a focus so so everyone can chime in with their uh inputs but uh, uh, you know, today i'll just uh, give a recap like quickly the speaker an invited speaker, so had a like technical uh, difficulty so was uh, somehow Uh, after a question and he was just like uh, out of the, you know, off the stage and couldn't speak. And uh, so we're about to wrap up uh, this uh, uh, invited uh, uh, speech uh, uh, just about, you know, uh, 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 about wrapping up. So uh, I guess it's not a good time to open uh, for open uh, discussion. Uh, and uh, again, uh, I w- would, it's my personal view that uh, I hope our forum is an uh, open stage and, uh, and uh, extend welcome to all that, uh, uh, but uh, maybe on a particular day in an uh, in um, uh, open stage uh, forum discussion. But uh, again, uh, focusing uh, not on style, but on the data, uh, specific data, I mean, as a scientist, that we all know that, or uh, science-loving, uh, or enthusiastic uh, uh, about science, that we know that uh, data is uh, holds the supreme. You know, is uh, and also the, the logic of science, right? So, uh, uh, propose your theory uh, and uh, welcome uh, challenges. Yeah. So that's just my. Uh, I hope you know uh, today we'll be uh, we'll be wrapping up so Just in not to, because uh, I'm thinking uh, uh, the, the invited scientists would uh, love to have a replay uh, of his session, concentrate on what he spoke spoken about. I
4: agree. Um, and within the science society, you know, we should be focused on data. I think if the IPCC report comes up, um, you know, an awful lot of science went into that. And, and uh, cutting-edge re- research went into that. If there's specific chapters in that report or, you know, or if somebody wants to do a room on that report, uh, we can go over the figures and look at the data. But um, I think categorical dismissal of what's in the IPCC report is probably not uh, a scope that we want to entertain here. Uh, so, Katerina, maybe we should wrap up for now and um, it was uh, it was a great run
1: yeah thank you everyone Um, yeah I would have been open to discuss more but um, uh, again I'm not against scientific discussion as long as it stays scientific and just categorically high scientific a uh, research done by thousands of researchers around the world with data collection. Uh, it's just it? not welcome here. <laughs> I'm it's sorry, but
8: that's... That. Cooper here. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, muted. yeah, I just want
1: to make that clear.
8: Sorry, I just want to clarify that my question is regarding the data. So, say we managed to cool down the vapors and collect not just CO2 but also sulfur and, and all sorts and some attempts have been made in that in that sense and we collect the vapors of the of the existing cars and we kind of put the the tab on the on the industries that that are the, the, the biggest villains in, in, in that sense and say um, the uh, reforestation may not be sufficient so perhaps uh, further collection from the actual atmosphere uh, may may result on, in balancing the, the CO2. There's a beautiful computational model showing how the CO2 is traveling around the planet, how the addition of the CO2 is affecting it. My question is uh, whether uh, anyone has thought of Creating a computational model, how removing the CO2 would benefit? That was my original question. I, um, I apologize, I didn't phrase it correctly. So that, 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 there it there, there goes. So, I don't so want yeah, to the, set off the, any climate discussions here. I'm, I'm sorry.
9: The the GeoMap... Um uh framework that i mentioned is is one such effort um there is another one that uh, i really should know the name of but it is eluding me at the moment uh, uh, as well that that uh, is you know is is trying to understand um uh, you know issues relating to uh carbon removal or trying to do other things uh that uh, that would counteract uh, um, global warming. Uh, So, so included in both, in both of those efforts are things like uh, solar radiation management. Um, Unfortunately, it's, uh, I've read a few papers uh, in that literature, certainly not, not, I haven't read that literature comprehensively at all, but uh, um, I think they've, they do have a lot of work to do, and and you know as I mentioned, Alan Robock um, was uh, was saying uh, pretty much as much, uh, um, and it's it's really vital vital work, and it's kind of in its infancy.
2: And with that, let's uh, let's run the wrap up.
3: Hey
8: guys, uh, sorry I stepped out, but uh, I guess I'll have to catch you guys in another
2: room that you guys make. Sorry about that.
5: Thank you for being here, and we look forward to seeing you in another Science Society room. We have many coming up.
4: Katarina, do you want to do the
1: wrap-up? Yeah. So actually, I wanted somehow to turn this into a better mood before we leave. I hate when things end like this, and you know, I put a lot of effort in this, and when I leave annoyed, it's kind of disappointing. But anyhow, uh, <laughs> let's look at the future because it's pretty good for our science society club. So, um, so tomorrow we have a. Uh, guest speaker theoretical physicist coming from Canada dr. Shoshani and he will talk about faster than light travel and time travel about his uh, theories uh, which will be really interesting and um, and next week we'll have a really busy amazing week so on Monday at 1 p.m. EST we will have dr felici from uh, switzerland Uh, he recently published together with the google team a really cool paper about controlling plasmas for nuclear fusion with ai uh, which i'm really looking forward to Um, and uh, then we have another room on monday dr bolton is coming she's really an amazing speaker and really nice about mental illness, early life stress, glia dysfunction. Serena should be very <laughs> excited about that room. And then we'll have on Wednesday, uh, Dr. Wen Li uh, talking about a new brain pathway to fear discovered. Um, that, um, and then we'll have another room uh talking about gut bacteria associated with personality traits and uh, on thursday we'll have dr Gebelin, um talking about his um, success about um, mitochondria transplantation uh, between living cells this is like the holy grain for rejuvenation uh, so we will talk about that And then we'll have another guest speaker on Thursday, Dr. Olien, talking about biomolecule mixes communicate and interact and adapt to their environment. Um, And then on Friday, it will be a more fun um, room about how dogs uh, recognize um, dog and uh, human emotions. And then on Saturday, we'll have Dr. Cheng talking about using molecular orbital-based machine learning, uh, which will be a really new approach of um, developing a new method of machine learning. So it will be a very busy but very exciting week. I hope everyone comes back and, um, yeah, uh, come back to our time travel room tomorrow with uh, dr Shoshani and thanks everyone for coming and asking questions and um, yep see you all, hear you all tomorrow <laughs> bye everyone
4: thanks everyone
0: thanks everyone see you all soon bye
1: bye